A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Joseph settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bihah and Ziphlah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably to him. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go down to Dolphin. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dolphin. Now they saw him from a distance, and before he came near them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into one of these pits in the wilderness. But lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to the brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with the sleeves, that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. They were coming from Gilead with their camels, carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it all down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some midnight traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace and peace to you 
from God our Creator and from Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Today's reading takes place in the land of Canaan, the Promised Land, which is located between the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and the Mediterranean. That's where God sent Abraham so long ago, and that's where Jacob and his family lived. As we know from previous stories in the Bible about Jacob, Jacob, like many of us, was a very flawed person. In particular, he was a usurper, a supplanter, and a trickster. But he had another flaw, a flaw that brought trouble and chaos and pain to his whole family. Let's take a close look at this scripture to discover exactly what Jacob's flaw was and what happened to his family as a result of it. Today's scripture tells us that Jacob loved his son Joseph more than any of his other children. And in this context, we can understand the word loved as meaning favored. Jacob favored Joseph. As his children grew, Jacob didn't try to hide how much he preferred Joseph over all the others. I think Joseph, the favored one, loved being the privileged guy. And I think he even took advantage of it. For instance, one day, after being out in the field shepherding with his brothers, Joseph came home and complained about them to his father. We don't know what his brothers did exactly, but we do know that Joseph came home and berated and tattled on them. And that's probably not the first or the last time something like that happened. It's interesting to note that the next time the brothers were out in the field shepherding, Joseph wasn't with them. He was at home with his father. As the favored child, I suspect that Joseph got a lot more material benefits than the brothers. Today's story refers to one of those. It was a spectacular gift. It was a beautiful gift from his father, a colorful coat, something unique, especially made for Joseph. It was long in length and it had long sleeves. We know it as the coat of many colors. Can you picture the scene when Joseph received that gift? He probably opened it and put it on in front of his brothers, probably smiling and lording it over them, preening. His father, watching with pride and delight. His brothers, the other sons watching too, but fuming with righteous indignation. That coat became a constant visual reminder to them of all the benefits that Joseph got and all the things they didn't get. And their anger began to boil over into hatred. Then, to top it all off, Joseph had a dream that he just couldn't resist telling his brothers. And in that dream, wouldn't you know it, he lorded over them and they all bowed down to him. The brothers were disgusted with his total sense of entitlement, his sheer arrogance and his nerve. As for Joseph, he seems oblivious to any thoughts or feelings uh, his brothers have about him at all. Either that or he feels so smug and powerful, he just doesn't care. After all, Joseph did choose to wear that coat, that symbol of his status, his privilege, his superiority, 
he chose to wear it on that special day, that fateful day that he went out to check on his brothers. And frankly, I'm surprised that Jacob asked him to do that. Didn't he realize how much the other brothers hated Joseph? Like Joseph, Jacob didn't seem to notice or care what the other children thought. He, it's as if he was blinded by love. That's the thing about favoritism. It's like wearing blinders. People can become so self-absorbed that they don't notice its harmful effects on other people, those who don't receive all the benefits from favoritism. The people who are passed over, not valued, the ones who feel and experience the unfairness of it all, the injustice. It seems like many of those who are favored simply don't notice the pain, the suffering, or the anger that it causes other people. When Joseph was on his way to find his brothers that day, they saw him coming from a distance. It was probably that bright, colorful coat that caught their attention and stoked their anger. As soon as Joseph reached them, they attacked. I picture those brothers' faces just turning beet red with rage just at the sight of him. And their shouts so full of hatred that spit flew out of their mouths with every word they yelled. I picture them mocking him and just savagely ripping that beautiful coat right off his body and tossing him in the pit, that pit with no water. Their hearts were so cold and twisted from hating that they sat down on the ground next to that pit and enjoyed their lunch. When slavers came along, the brothers happily sold Joseph. Later, they soaked the coat, that symbol of Joseph's privilege, in goat's blood, and they took it right back to their father and told him Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. This is a very disturbing story, to say the least. It's disturbing because it so brutally describes the sad dysfunction, the brokenness of Jacob's family caused by his favoritism. Jacob's favoritism led to inequities in his family which created anger, suffering, and chaos for all of them. And it's even more disturbing because today, that same chaotic dysfunction caused by inequities of favoritism, it's just all around us. Today, favoritism exists in our communities, our country, and our world. And people all over our country are anger. They're angry and they're suffering because of the inequity it causes. It affects our schools in so many negative ways. For one thing, favoritism can lead to inequity surrounding the quality of education through taxes. Tax distributions that fund schools can become lopsided. Wealthier neighborhoods can generate more tax money that is often used to help schools that are, frankly, they're doing pretty darn good. While schools that are desperately in need of help may not get the tax funding that they need for essentials. And let's face it, inequity allows certain people into certain schools and neighborhoods and keeps others out. And on the job, sometimes employers favor one employee over another and give them unfair advantages, like more one-on-one -on -one time, more help and more money, even if that person didn't necessarily earn it. 
Again, it creates an unfair environment for the rest of the personnel. And studies show that it can cause a lack of motivation for employees, which means less quality of work. Again, on a deeper level in business, favoritism can play itself out in who gets hired or who gets promoted. Favoritism at its worst becomes discrimination, bigotry, and racism. That's when inequities abound and flourish in every area of life. Housing, healthcare, and education, all opportunities, that's just a few of them. Favoritism is a frequent flyer in politics too. It shows itself through cronyism, party lines, and a lack of cooperation between rivals without concern for the good of the whole. In his musical Hamilton, Lynn manuel Miranda expresses his resentment at Jefferson, Madison, and Burr, at Hamilton's close relationship with Washington. Infuriated by Washington's chummy relationship with Hamilton, they all sing together, it must be nice, it must be nice to have Washington on your side. It must be nice, it must be nice. But their resentment expressed through this song develops into plotting ways to bring Hamilton down, to destroy his career, and to keep him from ever becoming president. Favoritism is a symbol of dysfunction and brokenness in the whole world that affects us all. It erodes fairness and equality in our country and around the world. But how do we stop it? How do we manage to dismantle it, given it's such deep and numerous roots? This is a huge question, a question that gives birth to many more questions. Questions that many people, brilliant people, are trying to resolve and have worked to resolve for many years. It can seem overwhelming. So let's look at this idea from a very micro level. Let's look at this story and see if it just might have some answers for us. Let's take a minute and imagine what this family might have done differently to stop favoritism that led to the unjust, destructive results. We know from stories in scripture that favoritism can be passed down from parent to child, generation after generation. That's what happened to Jacob. The pattern of favoritism was passed down to him from his parents. He was raised in the midst of it. As a child, he experienced the benefits of being his mother's favorite, but he also experienced the heartache of knowing that his father preferred his twin brother. I wonder how things would have turned out if Jacob would have learned from his experience as a child. What if he had determined in his heart to stop his tendency toward favoritism for his own children's sake? Or what if Joseph, the favored one, had reacted differently to all the favoritism lavished on him? What if he had more empathy, more love, and actually cared about how his brothers felt? What if, instead of tattling on his brothers, he actually lifted them up in his father's eyes? What if he had had the courage to speak the truth with love to his father about all that was going on in the family? And what about us? 
now, today? What can we do to help dismantle favoritism in its many ugly forms and work towards equality for all? Well, for one thing, we can wake up. We can take those blinders of privilege off by listening intently with empathy to the voices of those who have not been treated equally. And we can stay awake by continuing to listen, to learn, and to act. We can guard against favoritism in our own lives and hearts. We can become peacemakers. If we see something, we can say something. We can join the anti-race task force here at Holy Spirit. If we're 18 years or older, we can vote. At any age, we can educate ourselves on the implications of the issues at hand and the candidate's proposed solution to those issues. As John Lewis said so often, we can be kind to everyone. And we can heed his reminder to never, never, never give in to hatred because hatred is too big a burden to bear. Our story this morning takes place in the Promised Land. But as the story unfolds, it doesn't sound much like a place flowing with milk and honey or a place full of peace and joy, does it? Maybe the setting is pointed out to us at the beginning of this story to remind us of better things to come, to remind us of God's deep grace and love for all of us, and to give us hope and trust in God's promise of something that's better to come. It might just be that the lessons we can learn from this story are meant to help us, to help us change, to point us to a better way, the way of love and kindness for all, to the way of equality, justice, and peace for all of us. God created goodness in each one of us. The ability to be loving and kind, it's already there. All we have to do is to choose to tap into it. With the help of God, may it be so. Amen.